strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. And thanks for being here. Baseball is back and good for Arizona business. Spring training is here. And one of my favorite things to do at this time of year is talk with the president and CEO of your Arizona Diamondbacks, Derek Hall. Derek, welcome back. And one of my favorite things is to talk with you, my friend. Good to talk to you. You know, it's fun. We only get to talk every once in a while, but it's usually about fun stuff like this. And I want to dive in. How good does it feel to have a full spring training back here in Arizona? It is so good. You know, we had the first year, well, you know, of the pandemic, it, it was no crowds. And then that we canceled midway. And then the next year, it was limited crowds. And then last year, of course, we had the nonsense of the, of the lockout. So it's so good now to have, you know, just fans flocking. And we're going to have somewhere between 1.8 and 2 million fans going to spring training games. It's, it's great to see. We know that uh, one of the concerns I had with the lockout was following the pandemic was that fans were going to kind of revolt a little bit. That didn't happen, though. They're coming back in droves. They, they are. And I thought the same thing, obviously, Mike. I was worried about that. I mean, it doesn't send a good message, um, you know, when both sides are fighting and, and you don't have labor peace. So uh, it was good that we were able to recover. We had a, a great regular season. We had a really good postseason. So I think fans have shown that they've forgotten it. They've turned the page. And it's nice to see them coming out to, to these spring games. And big, big, big crowds. And usually the first week, they're not that big. You know, the weather's a little cooler. You, people aren't on spring break yet. So we're still a week or two away from having some massive crowds and this is also the year where we have world baseball classics so you know we're fortunate enough to be hosting those games as well second week of march or you know actually end of the first week into the second week at, at chase field where we've got team usa we've got canada we have mexico we have great britain we have columbia really good games there too Derek Hall is joining us, president and CEO of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, can you explain a couple of the rule changes or at least the mindset behind them? And what do you think this is going to do to the game? Sure. First off, I, I think the fact that we took away the shifting is a, is a good thing. I mean, you know, being a fan of the game my whole life and, and loving the players that can come up and, and hit a ball back up the box and, and get a base hit up the middle, that, that went away. You know, you had you, you almost had like the rover out there. They could shift knowing how the, how the batter is going to hit uh, just from, from looking at, at charts, spray charts, and looking at the history of that batter. That's gone. So, I, you know, traditional two players on each side of second base have to be in the dirt, which is good. Larger bases now, which uh, make, makes the distance obviously shorter for, for base stealers. Um, and the reason for that was safety, and, and I think that's a good thing as well. And then now the pitch clock. And the pitch clock has been fun to watch during spring. Not only has it sped up the game, but, you know, the players are having to adjust. And, and it's, uh, it's to the point now where both the hitters, because the batter has to be in the box and it has to be uh, locked in and looking at the batter or looking at the pitcher, sorry, with at least eight seconds left on that clock. And the pitcher's got 15 seconds. So we've seen a really good pace of game, which was important. It wasn't so much the time of game. It was more so the pace that we were concerned about because there's so much competition out there and everybody's looking at their phones or at their tablets. And, you know, we, we want kids attracted to this game. And that's going to be important that we can improve the pace. Is it going to be harder for the pitchers to adjust or the hitters? Because wasn't it Machado that said he's got some adjustment? He, was, he had a strike called in him, I think, at one of his first at-bats. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be more so an adjustment for the batters, and, and we're seeing it uh, so far in the first couple of days. But but they'll get used to it. And and the great thing, Mike, is that they've already had these new rules uh, in the minor leagues where they've been testing it. So we've got the majority of our clubhouse that, that are already used to it. These these kids have come up into the big league camp, and so they're helping some of the veterans now too, letting them know how they had adjusted already in the minors. 
Yeah, somebody said that they uh, they looked at the new bases and they look like pizza boxes. I haven't seen them, but is that <laughs> is that a fair evaluation? <laughs> it is a fair and, and an extra large pizza box. Yes, they are. They're, they're bigger. But, uh, you know, again, I think it's good. And, and the fact that we're able to make changes too often in baseball, you know, we stick to, uh, you know, oh, we're, we're set to a higher standard. And, you know, it's the way it's always been. I mean, come on. You know, it's, it's when you can make these changes and they improve the game, not only at game time and pace, but the way the game is played and you have technology. So why not? When we had instant replay, there were so many people that were against it. Thank goodness we have that now. You know, and eventually we're going to have automated strike zone where you're going to have the ability to call balls and strikes perfectly. Why wouldn't you if you have the technology? Well, there's no other sport that has purists like baseball purists. And the purists, exactly. what are they saying about this? Yeah, and, and I'm a purist, and I've adjusted, right? But uh, I, I think there's still some purists that have issue with it, but, I, but they'll get over it quickly, just like they did with the um, with the replay. You talked about some of the young guys on the Diamondbacks. Where, how long before we start seeing the Diamondbacks challenge? You're in a very tough division, but are you close to challenging for the playoffs? And how is this team going to be built? Are you going to bring in pieces? Are you going to grow pieces? Is it going to be both? What should the fans expect? Great, great question. So uh, a few years back, we were committed to really growing and rebuilding, and, and we've done a really nice job. We had a bottom five farm system, and now we have a top three. And that was when we hired Mike Hayes, and we basically said to him, rebuild our farm system. Our minor league system has to be where we get the majority of our talent. Then we're still going to go out and make some big trades. We're going to go out and get free agents and, and make a splash win and, win and if we can. But we're very close. We're knocking on the door. But we have to bring up our own players, have a sustainable model. We can compete with people are so worried about the payrolls of the Dodgers and the Padres, and those teams are great. But, we, you know, that's not an excuse. We can compete. Last year we had a 22-win improvement over the year before. And that's with the young talent. When you saw those, you know, young outfielders, Jake McCarthy, Dalton Varsho, who we ended up trading, I'll get to that in a second, Corbin Carroll, uh, Alec Thomas. We brought in uh, Lourdes Gurriel this year in a trade for Varsho, along with Montero, the catcher, who, by the way, had a bomb against the A's in, in the first game on uh, Saturday. So we're, we're really excited about the youth. And then it's really about pitching, too. I mean, Mike, we've got so many young arms, and we just haven't had that. We've got great depth. I think we're going to be competing. You know, we, we obviously made that huge leap last year. If we had had anything close to a good bullpen last year, we could have made the playoffs last year. So I, I think we're going to be one of those teams that's battling for the first or second wild card uh, this year, I hope. That's what we envision. Um, that's the expectation. But this team believes in themselves, and these are a bunch of winners. Another question. Before I let you go, I'd be remiss not to, not to ask about this. New story slash sports story is the stadium downtown. Uh, do the Diamondbacks yep. stay downtown? Do you search for a new facility somewhere else here in Arizona? What, what's the future? look like yeah a combination of both so we're you know obviously we were kicking the tires for a long time we, we wouldn't be leaving maricopa county so we you know obviously we plan to stay here so looking at what the options are mike out there for a for a new stadium i think obviously all things equal we would love to have you know a, a new stadium everybody would and, and we've got to generate more revenue so that we can then put it back into the product on the field and into the stadium itself but but a, a clear path to renovating chase field is right there too we're working with the city with the county with the state to figure out how we can all partner together we're willing to put hundreds of millions of, of our own dollars into it and you know the model though today like you and i have talked about before is not just a standalone stadium it's really mixed use you're seeing all these new ballparks pop up along with restaurants, hotels, retail, you know, that's, that's what we would want as well so that we can have 365 days of activation. And if it's downtown, 
great. You know, then we'll renovate Chase Field. Uh, it needs a lot of work to bring it up to, to speed with some of these newer ballparks when it comes to premium and experiential uh, elements, but but we're willing to do so. So, um, you know, we're still trying to make that work, but we're also looking at what options are out there. But we've got to act quickly because we only have about three and a half, four years left on our lease. Well, Derek, I always love talking to you, and I hate that it's in such sport short bursts like this, but I hope you'll come back again, and I hope your predictions about this team being competitive are right because it's always a better time when it's always more fun when they are competitive it's it'd be great to see again 100 percent. yeah and i'll come in studio next time but let's do this more frequently my friend all right d hall thanks man you got it pal all right that's Derek hall president ceo of your arizona diamondbacks coming up in a moment phoenix is going to sell forfeited guns to the public some people think that's a controversy we'll talk about it in just a couple of moments Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Coming up at 935, Brittany Holmes joins us, director of Elevate Ed or Elevated AZ, talking about education at CTE Month. We're going to get to that coming up uh, about, you know, it has a lot to do with home building and the economy, but also the future of young people. That's coming up at 935. I'm going to read just a headline. Despite objections, Phoenix will sell forfeited guns to the public. Now, on its face, I understand the controversy, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. Uh, Some Phoenix leaders don't like it, but the city will sell 1,400 firearms to the public. The handguns, rifles, and shotguns were turned into police after court orders that owners had to forfeit to them. Arizona law requires cities to sell forfeited firearms or risk losing state funding. So vice mayor. Uh, Yasmin Ansari said, I don't think police think Phoenix should be forced into the business of selling weapons. Here is my rebuttal to that. And I, I this is going to be controversial to many. Um, I would say that when you take guns out of the hands of people that shouldn't have them and put them into the hands that law abiding citizens or of law abiding citizens, you make society safer. The idea that less guns make us safer, I don't agree with. I don't agree with the principle. I don't agree with that premise whatsoever. Um, As a law-abiding gun owner, as someone who has owned guns my entire adult life, I do not subscribe to the idea that I make society more dangerous if I own more guns. I absolutely do not on any level make society more dangerous. And if you think I'm an anomaly, I'm not. I'm not an anomaly. This is where I wish I wish our conversation about gun control could be a civil one because it's an emotional issue. There are some topics that are just absolutely emotional the minute you start talking about them. When emotions get in the way, civil discussion becomes more difficult. When it comes to firearms, I've owned guns most of my adult life. Anyone who knows me knows I'm an excitable person. I am always down for a conversation or an argument. I don't shy away from a controversy. I enjoy those conversations. When most people are uncomfortable, I don't mind them at all. I don't mind being called wrong. I don't mind any of that. I've never brandished a firearm at a human being. Never, ever. And I hope that that stays that way for all of my life. For the people out there that don't know anything about gun owners, but you're a gun control person, I'm going to I'm going to plead with you to find somebody you know that is a gun owner. And everybody has someone in their family that owns guns. Everybody and ask them about what it's like to purchase a firearm legally, what the process is like, why they own guns, why they own more than one. Have a conversation with them about the mindset. 
I was just in New York City last week, and it was very weird after midnight to be walking the streets of, of midtown Manhattan, which, by the way, seems safe. A lot of people are talking about the huge amount of crime in New York City. But there was times – it was after midnight. I was done on the air when I was with – I did some stuff with CNN. I was done at midnight and was walking back to my hotel. It wasn't very far. Stopped and got some food at a deli that was open. And it was very strange to feel as if here I am in a very strange city, and if somebody decides to rob me, unless it's fighting them off with my bare hands, I have no means to defend myself. It was a, that, that, that scared me a little bit. I'm not going to lie. I was a little nervous. The idea that law-abiding citizens in the city of Phoenix buying guns, number one, it's money into the city coffers. Number two, you should now know that those firearms are going into the hands of people that are law-abiding citizens that wouldn't use a gun unless it was absolutely necessary against a criminal that had one. I want to give you a couple of headlines to mirror this with. This is from Zero Hedge. Chicago's pursuit of criminal justice reform is an utter failure. Homicides top the nation for the 11th year. Crime is still rising in the city of Chicago. So we have very restrictive laws against law-abiding citizens and the firearms that they might own or they do own. And we are easing the laws on people that have shown themselves to be criminals. That is a recipe for crime. L.A. is doing it. We've seen it happen in Northern California and San Francisco. We see what's happening in Seattle, what's happening in Minneapolis and other places like this where they are doing the same thing. The criminal justice reform, which is the revolving door of releasing people on their own recognizance, taking criminals that have committed crime. Many times they are violent crimes against other people, not punishing them, and then saying the problem is in the firearms themselves, and we are going to restrict or in some cases completely take away the firearms from law-abiding citizens, and that's going to make us safer, has not worked. So I would say with all due respect to my friends that are gun control advocates that would read a story like this and on the headlines say, well, I'm not I don't have any problem with the Second Amendment, but that's dumb to put fourteen hundred more guns on the street. You're not putting them on the street. You're putting them in the hands of law abiding citizens. How does that not make us safer? How does that not make us make a situation where, if need be, the playing field has been leveled? I understand the emotion, but after you get past the emotion, you have to think a little bit about actually who is getting them. If I bought a firearm from Tombstone Tactical, where I normally go, or I bought a firearm from this sale from the city of Phoenix, what's the difference? What is the difference? The idea that there's somebody that says, I'm anti-gun and we shouldn't be forced into that, that's the same kind of argument when I make and say, well, tax dollars should not be paying for abortions because I'm pro-life. Same argument, different topic. Coming up in a moment, Brittany Holmes is going to join us from Elevate Ed or Elevated Arizona. We're going to talk about um, education and the market for jobs. All that's coming up here next. and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. As most of you know, uh, I came from the trades, and this being CTE Month, or Career Technical Education Month in the state of Arizona, we have invited, uh, along with the director of Elevated Arizona, Brittany Holmes. Brittany, am I getting right? Is it Elevated or Elevate Ed Arizona? 
Hey there. Yes, it's Elevate Ed, Arizona. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I was getting it right. It's it's a little double entendre there, and I wanted to make sure I got it right. Let's talk about uh, your involvement, your organization, and this how it coincides with CTE Month. Absolutely. Yeah, so Elevate Ed AZ, we launched about three years ago. We're an initiative from the Greater Phoenix Chamber Foundation, and we're really working to ensure today's students are ready to meet those workforce demands of tomorrow. Uh, and a lot of our work really overlaps with CTE. We have college and career coaches on campuses at local high schools, uh, supporting students that are both in CTE programs and those that are interested uh, in getting them into those, those programs to get access to internships, job shadows, um, and a lot more opportunity. You know, one of the things that I, at least I'm, I'm not making an assumption I've heard is happening is that there's been a little bit of a shift that before career counselors in school or when they, you know, when you had uh, someone that was counseling you, it was all about college education. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But there are some students that CTE and going into the trades or going into a specific skill are more adaptable to. It, there's been a shift in that, right? That people are looking more at these careers right out of high school? Yeah, and I, I think it's twofold. I think people don't realize, like a, a recent study came out where 94% of students who pursue CTE programs um, graduate high school and most actually do enroll in college. Um, so there is, there's a, a dichotomy there. We, we support students uh, in both routes, right? There's some great careers that students can go into right out of high school using those certifications they've earned in their CTE programs. Um, and they're stackable certifications, too, where many of them do go on to post-secondary and get additional credentials and degrees. So uh, there's just a lot of different really amazing paths that students can take. And um, it's, you know, there's there's great things that you can go through college and attain. But then there's also some using certifications and CTE that you can get some great jobs out of high school as well. Yeah, it's, it's not an either or prospect. I, when I've, I've been had the pleasure, the privilege, really, of speaking at uh, EVIT each year for their completion uh, for their programs, their graduation ceremony or completion ceremonies. And the superintendent each year asks the kids to stand how many of the kids that are completing their CTE are going on to college. And it's usually about two thirds, which is a huge number of kids that are going to take that skill set with them and a lot of times help pay for their college and have the skill set for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. Yeah, we see that a lot. And there's just some amazing programs out there. And right, we know some of them require a college education, like there's engineering CTE programs where students kind of get their feet wet, and then they can move on to pursue that either technician level or bachelor degree level um, engineering jobs. Yeah, and, and it's just fascinating to see how 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 dedicated it seems to me anyway maybe i'm wrong but i've seen such a higher graduation rate with some of the kids that are in cte it seems as if now they have a purpose for what they want to do when they're in cte they see how their education is going to pay off for them after high school it kind of makes them focus a little bit more exactly yeah we see that a lot as well where if if a student really can see how am I going to use this, right? How am I going to use math when I get out of high school? And if they can figure out how it's applied in the real world, they're going to be so much more interested in learning it um, and more successful. So we see that a lot with students. And I think it, it's what kind of lights the fire with students. I think in addition, those opportunities that lead to work-based learning where they can do internships, right, and actually go apply it at mm -hmm. a business and see that really 
real world application. I think that's huge for students. Brittany Holmes is joining us. She's the director of Elevate at Arizona. Um, isn't it interesting also that in these CTE programs, general, generally speaking, it's leaders in the specific industry that are teaching the classes. So they have that pipeline where a lot of these students are working in their trade, whether it's culinary arts or others. They're going into these these skills. They're going into these jobs sooner. And by the time they're done with high school, they've already got job experience as well as classroom experience. Yeah, absolutely. Many CTE teachers came directly out of industry. So it's it's a huge opportunity for students to connect back in, whether it's where that CTE teacher worked before or uh, connections through their business advisory councils. There's just a lot of ways students can get plugged in. Um, and those the teachers who um, provide this education to students are really incredible. Just have most of them having worked in the industry can, can really communicate what that's like to students. So tell us how Elevate Ed is helping with these kids, what, what, your, what your organization does. And then if you can tell people how they can get a hold of you, whether it's parents for a kid or a young person that's looking for direction, how can they find you and what can you help them do? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are partnered right now with 13 schools across uh, the greater Phoenix region. And it's a great opportunity for employers or business partners to connect with students uh, to whatever level they're comfortable with. It could just be guest speaking in classrooms about their industry, uh, to hosting a half-day job shadow, to providing an internship for a CTE student. So a lot of opportunities there for business partners if they're interested in connecting thing. Uh, they can just go on our website, elevateedaz.com slash business. And there's a quick little form to submit and our team will reach right out. We've got a team of business partnership folks um, who will really get connected with with which schools make the most sense based on where the business is and get them plugged in right away. Um, and yeah, anyone who is interested can can reach out to us. You know, I've heard that the job shortages in the construction world, right, came from, we're talking about a couple of hundred thousand jobs are going to be, or, you know, people are going to be needed for these jobs in the next couple of years. What about the other industries? What other industries are you seeing big shortfalls in the number of people that are in these careers? Yeah, so um, we know that there's there's huge gains in jobs expected in education, health services, professional and business services. You mentioned construction, um, financial services, and manufacturing. We're also hearing a lot right about all the semiconductor work being done. Um, so there's there's big opportunity in a lot of different industries. And uh, I know that Arizona Office of Economic Opportunity they project that Arizona will add. 721,000 jobs by 2030. So a lot of jobs coming up in Arizona. Yeah, that's incredible. And I'm glad for the work that your organization is doing. I appreciate the time today. And this is something that's an ongoing conversation on the show. And I hope you'll come back. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. All right. Thanks. That is Brittany Holmes from Elevate Ed AZ. Uh, Coming up in a moment, we had a conversation in the first hour of the show with Jennifer Wright. She was on the uh, election integrity unit with the attorney general's office and an interesting perspective about the report that everybody's been talking about. A little bit of what she had to say in that interview. You'll hear part of it coming up here in just a couple of moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. 
Hey, thanks so much for being here. If you have a pet, you are most probably proud of them. I think they're the cutest pet on the planet. We'd love to see the photos. Send us your pet photos. You could win a $100 gift card. Go over to the contest page at KTAR.com for complete details and to submit your photos. Um, I had a conversation this morning with Jennifer Wright. She's an attorney. She worked in the election integrity unit on the civil side. There were two sides to this. You're going to hear her explain kind of the role of the EIU and her involvement there. Uh, but she was an attorney on the civil side of things. Here's how we started off this morning in our conversation. The election integrity unit was um, had two divisions. There was the civil division and the criminal division. So the civil division, I received all of the complaints that came in. And when I believed that there was enough information provided in the complaint that it rose to a potential criminal violation, I would forward it on for criminal for their further review and investigation. But in the civil unit, I focused more on you know violations that might not raise to criminality. So I asked her because the concern that we've heard is widespread fraud. The, the allegation has been stolen elections. Now, I'm not saying this is her allegation. The allegation that has permeated our politics since 2020 is that the election in 2020 was stolen, which means it was done intentionally, that people out there have stole the election, fraudulent ballots, whether it was mail-in ballots or whatever it was. So I asked the question, did you find widespread fraud? Did the EIU find widespread fraud? Well, I think that you're using the word fraud to presume that somebody did something intentional. So looking at the report provided by criminal appears to be from their March initial report. Um, they had at least seven areas where they were unable to determine the, the results of the investigation because there wasn't enough information provided. So here has been my issue from the beginning with this. In order to believe that the election was stolen in 2020, you have to believe that people are in on it on both sides of the political aisle. And in any any time you have you have to have uh, opportunity, you have to have intent. And I, I'll be honest, I don't see. First of all, I don't see intent. I don't know about opportunity, but I don't see intent. I'll talk about opportunity in a moment. Um, when you look at some of the people that have been accused of being in on this, you've got the new county recorder, Stephen Richer. Now, unless Stephen Richer is the best actor on the planet, I was at events with Stephen Richer for a long time on the election trail in 2020, not together, but we would end up at events together. And I heard him speak many times and many times he was a very, you know, he came, he said out loud, I'm a very conservative Republican. He was very, very supportive of the reelection of Donald Trump. He's now been accused of being in on it. I've talked about Clint Hickman and my friendship with Clint over the years. He is the chairman of the county board of supervisors, the former uh, chairman and Bill Gates. They have been accused of being in on it, along with the rest of the members of the board, the county attorney's office in on it, Uh, our current governor, when she was the secretary of state in on it, our former governor, Doug Ducey, in on it. So we're oh, and the sheriff in on it. So a couple of Democrats, a lot of Republicans are all in on the conspiracy to steal or at least allow and cover up the stealing of the 2020 election. This is where I've had a problem from the beginning. We had no answers from the audit when the audit came out. The audit actually showed the vote count very, very close to what the count was with the voting machines. As a matter of fact, I believe it came up with more votes for Biden in the end. Um, But they had questions that they sent over to the attorney general's office and this election integrity unit. So I asked uh, Miss Wright, I asked Jennifer if uh, if she believed that Maricopa County was intentionally withholding information. For my side, civil investigation, I would say I, I, I can't say whether it was intentional 
intentional or unintentional. I'm not going to imply any motive, but I will say I issued a letter on May 17, 2022. I asked for a response uh, by uh, May 23rd. Uh, I, I received a response from their attorney saying that he would be out of, of the country on May 23rd, so we extended that deadline, uh, but I never received any response to this May 17th letter. So, you know, why or how or, or what their thought process is, I'm not going to presume any sort of illicit motives. What I'll say is that they never responded to my May 17th letter. So then the question I followed up and asked was, what about um, subpoenas? Couldn't you have subpoenaed to have that information given to you? She said that she was not able to. Jennifer Wright herself was not able to do that. I followed up by saying, but then couldn't the attorney general have done that? Couldn't the attorney general have gotten subpoenas, gone to court and gotten a subpoena for that information? She said that attorney client privilege um, didn't allow for her to elaborate on what she may have suggested to the attorney general. She said, but that was an option. So you can infer, read into that, whatever you want to read into that, uh, whether or not they were going to subpoena documents that they think were necessary. The issue here for me, and I mean this sincerely, the issue for me is that we are able to, as a society, put a period on these elections and move forward with trust in the election system. And that, for me, is more than anything else the most important thing. So I talked with her because part of the issue was was signature verifications on ballots. I asked her about the verification process. She said that they're using a computer program that may not do the job. I talked to her about the ones that she physically looked at herself. No, I was able to. I did. A, I had a sample set of data from the signature reference files that were provided by through the Senate audit. In my letter, I specified that there were 51 signatures that I had reviewed that I had agreed that didn't appear to match. I had asked for more records regarding those sampling of those 51 signatures, and I never received a full explanation of those 51 signatures. Again, that was a reference set, so it was. Uh, I looked over hundreds upon hundreds of signatures and determined uh, and agreed that 51 of them did not appear to be accurate. And so I wanted more information, and I was never I never received that information. So in her mind, and I'm, I, this is based on what she said. I'm not guessing, but based on what she said, there was you know incomplete in the sense of she didn't get some of the information that she requested. Um, and so whether or not there was election fraud or, or somebody intentionally or unintentionally, that's what we all wanted to get to the bottom of. The accusation is still that the election was stolen in 2020 and again in 2022. Uh, Carrie Lake is still proceeding with a lawsuit, and, and she is going to the state Supreme court with a with a uh, wants the election nullified and there are still these questions about those two elections is there information that says we should be concerned about our elections or is there information that says we should move on that's what we all want to get to we all want to get to a place we trust our elections and we move on i don't know if we're there yet with some people coming up just after 10 o'clock east palestine ohio and what the residents are saying there it's all coming up next